concerns. But right now, uh, we're going to read the Bible, and we are in Genesis. But um, talking to Jacob, he's really keen for you to have a Bible in your hand, so you get your phone out or a Bible. But So right now, Jez has a bunch of Bibles, going to come down the aisle. If you need a Bible, just put your hand up, and uh, old Pastor Jez will pass one on to you, grab one off him. And uh, we're looking at Genesis 1 today, Genesis 1, 1, right through to 2, 3, the, the account of creation. Um, so grab those Bibles, open them up, kick them open. First page, Genesis 1, the very beginning. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out with, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it be separated from the, the, let it be separated the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said that the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said that the earth sprout vegetation, vegetation plants yielding seeds and fruit Fruit trees bearing fruit in which, in which is their seed, each according to its, its own kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth, forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, so separate the day from the night. And let, there be, let, let them be for signs and for seasons and for the days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living, living creature that moves with, the with, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said that the earth bring forth living creatures according to, to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the, on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living, living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. 
and to every base of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Hey guys, keep those uh, Bibles open in front of you with uh, Genesis 1 open. That's where we're going to be spending uh, really all of our time uh, this afternoon. And I'm excited to be getting into this passage and to be um, finally kicking off this timeline that's been kind of standing here for the last five weeks. We've done all of our kind of theory behind it and we're getting stuck into the story. And we're, getting, we're starting the story at the beginning, which is a great place to start. And today we're looking at the question, why am I here? Now, why am I here is a, is a question you've probably asked uh, in your life for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, why am I here is the question that I find myself asking whenever I go to one of my wife, Sarah's, friend's weddings. Uh, normally it's kind of during the speeches as I realize that I'm sitting at a table with a bunch of people I've never met, never intended on meeting, will never meet again, um, listening to someone who I've never met talk about someone else that I've never met. The question inevitably comes into my mind, why am I here? So it's a question that can kind of carry a bit of regret. Um, it's one that can be filled with confusion. Uh, it's the question I'd find myself asking uh, in high school when one of the little year seven kids would come to the door of the classroom and say, Jacob, you need to go to the deputy principal's office. And as I would sit outside his office, uh, the question would run through my head, why am I here? And my hope would be that when I actually go in, he'd tell me why I was there, rather than starting with, do you know why I've got you here right now? To which I would say, because I skipped class, to which he would say, no, actually, but I'm going to add that to the list as well. Um, it can be uh, th- on that kind of level. But the question, why am I here, can obviously run a a lot, lot deeper than that. Um, It can be a question of purpose. So why am I here on earth? What am I here to do? What is is my life all about? But I think that the question of why am I here can even go deeper than that in terms of why am I here at all, as opposed to just simply not even existing. Um, Why is anything here? Why Why is the world as we know it here? What is going on? And I think that this is a a question that's probably worthy of more time than we tend to give it in our culture. Um, It constantly surprises me how chill the world is, um, given that that most people wouldn't say that they know why they're here or what the reason for life is. I'm I'm surprised that everyone can just get on with watching Netflix and buying stuff and going to work. I'd expect everyone to be curled up in a ball from the terror of the unknown. But, um, But maybe that's just me. But... But today, we're getting to this question, why am I here? And this is the the, the question that the the start of the story of the Bible seeks to answer. And like I've said, our goal in this series is to help you make sense of the Bible, to make sense of what it's on about so that you can actually read it for yourself and kind of know where things fit together. And one of the most important things to understand, to understand the rest of the Bible, everything else from page one onwards, is how it begins. Because it's in the beginning of the Bible that we see the foundations for the whole story that is to follow. That we start the story of the Bible with a God who is powerful and good and humanity made in his image. 
So that's what we're going to be looking at this afternoon together. Before we do that, I'm going to pray for us that God would be with us and helping us understand his word and that he would speak to us. So uh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are about to, uh, we're about to hear from you and consider these words that you have spoken to us by this book of the Bible. And we just pray that you would help us see what you want us to see, to know what you want us to know, um, to right-size ourselves and this world and to right-size you as our creator God, that we might understand more of who we are, what we're meant to be, and what this life is all about. And we pray you would help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, that passage that, uh, that Gav just read to us, and if you're doing the, uh, the daily readings, you would have read this a few weeks ago, is probably in, in some ways one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. I think that makes sense. It's the, the, the first page. If you're going to pick up a Bible and try to read it, that's where most people start. But I think it's also one of the passages that has the most confusion around it. Uh, it's, it's one of the passages that I think has put a lot of people off even continuing reading in the rest of the Bible. There's this elephant in the room about this passage uh, that we need to kind of think about and, and to deal with. And in particular, the, the question that just the first thing that comes into most people's minds when they think about this is what is going on with the whole seven-day thing? Now, I think in some ways that's a shame because the, what is in this passage is just so much deeper and, and richer than the debate that people often kind of sit out around this. But I also think it's worth just talking about quickly because when we come to any part of the Bible and are trying to understand it, one of the first questions we need to be able to answer is what type of writing is this? What is the author trying to tell us? And I think a lot of people struggle with this. And I've found over the last five years or so of City Light, I've had the, the privilege of meeting with lots of people who have kind of come in here uh, who are interested in finding out about Christianity, haven't, haven't grown up going to church, haven't grown up reading the Bible. And without fail, when we read this passage that you've just read, uh, people are confused. There's this question of how can, how can we go on reading the Bible and trusting it when it is saying something pretty major, namely that the world is made in seven days, and that seems completely at odds with what we've learned in school and university and what scientists, um, for the most part, believe about the kind of processes that it took for the world to be made. Um, and so I want to I think about this now and, and talk about a bit of information about how, how we can understand and place this particular piece of writing. But getting into that, there's a few comments I want to make. Uh, I think we've got a lot of reason to be quite humble as we approach this question of what type of writing is Genesis 1, what's it trying to communicate. The reason for that is that um, this is one of these passages, there's a lot of disagreement among Christians about what it means, which is actually unusual when it comes to the Bible. Um, Christians disagree about some stuff, but, but not really to the extent of this. And so it's worth saying that there are Christians on, with multiple understandings of what Genesis 1 is trying to do in the type of writing that it is. Uh, on both sides of this, there are, there are people who are intelligent, smart, um, 100% convinced that the Bible is good, convinced that the Bible is God's word, convinced that God is amazing and can do anything, and yet have different understandings about what type of writing we're looking at here. Um, so I just want to kind of present that really briefly. Throughout, throughout history, the, probably the most common way that, the Bible, that this passage of the Bible has been interpreted 
is that the type of writing it is, is, is seeking to in some part address the question of how did the world get made? What are the actual processes? What would it have looked like if you were standing there at the dawn of time, at the, when creation occurred, what would you have seen? And, and many people have interpreted this. This is the kind of writing that's answering that question. And so namely, that you would have seen, if you were able to be there, uh, over you know, seven, seven days, over a week, seven 24-hour days, the world being created. And for the most part of history, this is how Christians have read this passage. Um, so if this is what, how, you, how you read it, you're in good company. Um, but for a lot of us, this is a struggle today. Uh, and it's a struggle because it seems to be in very stark contrast with what geologists say about the time that it took for tectonic plates to move from what botanists say about the time that it took for, for, for plants to produce and spread and, and cover this world. It's in contrast with what astronomers and physicists say about the length of time for, for planets and, and stars and galaxies and solar systems to assemble. Um, and yet there's a, there's a few defences that people make to this. Uh, people who believe that the that Genesis is in fact describing a seven-day literal creation. Um, and, and I think the most compelling of this would be that if God is God and God can do anything, then surely he could create a world that is mature, that has marks of things going on even if they didn't necessarily happen the way that our science would point to, if that sort of makes sense. Another way that people read Genesis is a bit of a tweak of this. It's still reading it as a type of literature that answers the question of how, that it, that it really is seeking to describe the actual processes that, that went on to make the world and the universe. But it's to say that it's not talking about seven days, but it's seven periods of time. And they look in the Bible where it says that for God a day is like a thousand years. And to say that a God who is sitting outside of time may not conceive of days in the same way that we do. Um, and so that, that, that gives room for, for thousands or even millions of years to occur to see this kind of process play itself out. Um, and, but that's still, it's still approaching it as the, the sort of text which is answering how. How did the world come to be? Um, and there's plenty of, in, like I said before, uh, intelligent Christian people that can provide very good defenses of those two views. But the other interpretation of this passage that I want to put forward, just because it's the one that I hold to, and again, I want to be humble about this, um, is that the type of writing that we've just read and that Gav just read to us isn't so much the kind of what you would have seen if you were there, historical, literal, if you want to use that word, account of what happened, but it's more the type of writing that's raising a different type of question altogether. It's not seeking to answer the question of how did the world come to be, but more, why did the world come to be? Uh, and even more than that, maybe, who is responsible? We're looking at questions of why and who, I think, a lot more than, than how. And this isn't just come kind of, just well, let's abandon what, what it looks like it's saying just to make room for science. Um, the, the reason that people take this perspective is because they see it in the text. There are, there are signs in this piece of writing that show it's not written as though it was, a, I think, a scientific or historical account, but it's... It's written as a poem. It's written as something that is uh, symbolic, something that is, is full of kind of various literary techniques. So as, we, as you were reading, I'm sure you would have noticed that kind of the creation account is broken up into these stanzas filled with repetition. Um, whereas we might associate with a poem more commonly, you know, the idea of kind of rhyming, that's kind of a giveaway. Um, repetition uh, and grouping was far more intrinsic to poetry for that ancient Hebrew people. 
So what you see as you read this is, is, is kind of repeated ideas. You see things grouped into sections, and particularly grouping things into sevens um, is a very kind of Hebrew way of doing creative, expressive writing. Um, and so, under this view, what you see in the seven days isn't so much a chronological description of the how God made the world, but it's a logical description of the, of the why and the purpose that God built into it. That the seven days people have looked at have, have noticed have actually a, a very particular structure to them. I've got a slide that's going to come up on the screen that I just think helps express this. That you don't just kind of see seven random days in order. You see uh, in the six days of creation, because day seven is, is when God rests, but in the days of creation you see three days where God is creating kind of these spaces or forming these arenas, um, getting things ready, in a sense, and then you've got three days where he, he fills them with things. So in day one, you see God separate lightness from, from, from darkness, um, and then in day four, he fills this lightness with the sun, he fills darkness with the moon. Uh, in day two, we see him separate um, the, the heavens or the sky from, uh, from the oceans, and then in day five, he fills the sky with birds. He fills the ocean with, uh, with sea creatures and, and fish. In day three, um, he separates from this world, which in this point is, is water. He separates land from that and puts on it plants. And in day six, we see that get actually then filled with animals and humans to actually tend these plants and, and to eat from them. And the argument when you look at that is that this is uh, a description of, of, of uh, an intelligent, planned creation, but perhaps not necessarily the order in which it happened, that necessarily, you know, logically speaking, as we would understand it now, the sun would need to exist before light. But in, in this way of viewing things, it's God creating these vast arenas and then filling them with things, uh, to, to, things to fill them. And within, within this reading, which I think is a helpful one, it, it means that you can approach the Bible and not have to have uh, this raging conflict between the Bible and science. It means you can approach uh, questions of astronomy and physics, genetics, uh, tectonics, wh- whatever you want to look at, um, at their own face value. It doesn't mean accept them blindly, but, but you can actually look at them because it's just acknowledging that it's a completely different question that science is trying to ask. Science is in pursuit of the how. How did things come to be? But what we're looking at and what we need to understand is the Why? Um, and I think this allows Genesis to be timeless. If we, we might love to know exactly how, thing, how things kind of happened, how life came to be, how we came to be as people, and how the universe came to exist from nothing. But if Genesis was all just about cells and atoms, molecules, uh, laws of physics, movements of galaxies and stars, then it would have been a pretty useless piece of writing for every culture that existed before the microscope or the telescope. Um, and, and the logic would follow that if, if Genesis was written to include all of the science that we'll know in 500 years from now, it'd be useless for us because it would just go over our heads. There are, there's plenty in this world that we are yet to learn. But this is a timeless piece of writing that speaks deep truth to pre-scientific people, to scientific people like we are now, and to the, to the people that are going yet, to yet to follow us. Because the question of why is timeless. And so, what we're going to look at now for the rest of this talk isn't so much just kind of arguing about the how, but what is this passage saying about why? 
What is this passage saying about why the world is the way that it is? Why are we created? Um, and this is where Christians on both sides of the debate actually agree. Uh, the claims that Genesis 1 makes about the world and, and life as we know it is radical. The Genesis ultimately says the why of why we are here is that there is a good and powerful God that made everything. And this is a radical claim. So let's look at this together. If you've got it still open in front of you, we're going to look at uh, a bit of it starting at verse 1. We're seeing that everything exists because of the God who made it. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Saying that before anything was, there was God. Everything in our, in our physical reality. When, when it's saying that God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens is the Hebrew word for sky. It's talking about the stars, the, the universe around us. He's saying that everything that there is in our physical universe is there because of God. And God was there before that. The universe didn't just start existing on its own, is the claim made by Genesis. If you look on the next verse, it says, The earth, in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, the first description of the world you have here isn't particularly attractive. It's basically as bad as it can get. It's without form. It's you know empty. It's dark. Uh, it's over the face of the deep, which is a reference you get from the next verses. That at this point, the world is described as being covered in uninhabitable dark oceans. And so, what we see from here is that from God's act of creation, He then goes about shaping the world and by extension the universe, to be a fitting place for human life. So he starts changing it. In verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We see this first loop of, of, of the creation account with God speaking, and then it happening. That God doesn't create as we create. Um, we make things out of other things. God creates out of nothing. Just by the, his, own, his own spoken voice, he can call things as complex as the concept of light into being. He does this again and again. He, he speaks and, and, the, and the world is formed in, in terms of water and sky in verse 6. He speaks again in verse 9 to, to create the land, in verse 11 to create the trees and the plants. And again and again he speaks for the sun and the moon and birds and fish and animals and people, and it happens. We are seeing the description of a God, a God who is powerful. Whatever means he did to, to do this, the God that is responsible for making all of this is, is beyond description. He is powerful. And it's saying that everything that there is, is there because God wanted it to be there. There's no accidents. There's no stuff just popping out of nothing. God is creating. And everything that is created is there because of God. And I think this is, this is huge in our culture. We, our culture would have us believe we are a cosmic accident. That's what, that's what Genesis is pushing back against. Um, and it's not just a modern thing to think we're a big accident. Ancient cultures conceived of themselves and the world as being, in essence, a mistake. At the time that, we, we, that historians guess that, that Genesis was first written down um, from an oral tradition, that the Babylonian Empire, which was surrounding the people of Israel, had a story of creation called the Enuma Elish. 
Now, has anyone here read the Enuma Elish? Show of hands. No one, including me. I just Wikipedia'd it. Um, the, the Enuma Elish was uh, was the creation account of the Babylonian people, and and people have pointed to this because it's got some similarities um, to to what's going on at the start of Genesis. In particular, it's kind of this story where creation happens over these six stages, and, and people are formed in the in the in the sixth stage, and similar to how in Genesis one people are made on day six. But that's kind of where the similarities end. The story of Enuma Elish describes these conflicting gods in some divine realm fighting with one another. And you've got these kind of gods like fighting for supremacy and control of the other gods and they're you know, slashing each other with swords, chopping off limbs, like stabbing people in the guts, intestines and blood and guts are flowing all over the place. And the way that it describes it is, out of the, the body parts of these slain gods, the world is made. That, that what our cosmos and our universe consists of is the remnant of a divine battle, the kind of leftovers. And, and in day six, when humanity is created, they're created by the god Marduk, who's realized that he can't uh, enslave the other gods for his own purposes. So out of some of the dead gods he finds around them, he forms people out of their guts. Um, people are an afterthought, an afterthought in a mistaken world. And, and I actually think that, that this ancient mythology is more like your modern materialistic atheism than it is actually with Genesis. The, 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 the atheist materialist worldview around us um, is similar to the enumeration, not in the sense that it, we're the result of these you know, conflicting divine forces, but we're the, we're the result of the collision of unguided physical forces, simply forces of nature that without explanation or description or intention, the universe just exploded into existence. That, that randomly, uh, the forces of physics just seemed to make things work, that, 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 that the galaxies were brought together, um, solar systems, uh, planets formed rotating around their suns, and that by some cosmic fluke, our solar system caused one little planet, one little rock, just to be the right temperature with the right gravity that and the, you know, the right amount of light and composition of hydrogen and oxygen to have a few molecules that will band together in some bizarre way that causes them to replicate and, and become more complex, to develop a genetic code, that at the end of the day, after millions of years of this unguided, random fluke chance, that it's just, it is literally nothing more than a fluke, that the molecules that make up you are you as opposed to the molecules that make up the chair that you're sitting on. That's the description of, of why we are here. That the, the, the atheist, no God in the picture worldview would have us believe. That we are not intended, we are just here. But I think our world displays the creative genius of a God who is making things with intention, with order, with, with intelligence, with purpose. That when you look at creation around you, the only sensible, right minded conclusion to make is that there is an intelligent and powerful God behind it. Paul in Romans 1, um, I've got this verse on the screen so you don't have to turn to it, um, says in verse 19, he's talking about people and their, how they should know God. I think we're going to have that up there um, on the screen. Uh, Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What Paul is writing is that when you look at the world and the things that have been made and the way that things are, 
that ought to be enough to conclude that God is there. That's what he's saying. That, that, no, that nothing other than a, a divine, uh, intelligent author or architect or artist could ever create anything as spectacular as this world. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, Sarah, my wife, and I, we went to, uh, we had a holiday out in the outback uh, in Uluru. And, uh, and one of the things we did when we were out there uh, was we went to a, an art installation that had been installed called the Field of Lights. And it's an, a pretty amazing thing to witness. Um, this artist, Bruce Monroe, has set up, I've got a photo to give a bit of idea of it, these 50,000 uh, light bulbs in, in kind of blown glass stands out in the middle of kind of this, this flat desert area, over the space of about a kilometre squared. So you hop on a bus and you, you, know, you drive out with a, with a tour group and you, and you just get to wander around this field of lights, aptly named. And, and, and you look out and you see, every direction you look, just kind of lights and, and there's just, you know, it's, it's expansive and massive, but there's intricate details in the way they've been arranged and the way that the lights are kind of slowly changing. Um, and, and it is a kind of awesome thing to behold. Um, and, and you'd hear other people kind of commenting like, oh, wow, isn't this amazing? Isn't this great? How clever? Who, who would have thought of this? Yada, yada, yada. But, but I was out there, and I was like, we just paid like 40 bucks to look at a bunch of lights when we're in the desert, and above us is the Milky Way. There's, there's, instead of just little light bulbs, above us there is 250 billion stars, each one the size of our sun or bigger, just, just sitting there for us to look at. And so, anyway, I think Sarah wish I got a bit more into the lights in the ground. Um, but but it's, it's, it's true, isn't it? If you, look at, if you look at what, you know, some light bulbs arranged in a certain way, you say, you know, how, how creative, how amazing, you know, what skill. And yet so often we don't appreciate the reality that there's this reminder above us of the sheer power and might and creative genius of the God who made everything. We ignore that. We don't appreciate that. Psalm 19, this will be on the screen as well, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not known. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. The, the psalmist here is just reflecting that it doesn't matter if you speak English or ancient Hebrew or Spanish or Mandarin or whatever, no matter what language it is, there is a language written in the sky that just shouts that God is amazing, that he is powerful. And I think we need to reflect this. We need to reflect on this and understand it and consider what is being said there. But what's more, not only does it show that God is powerful, seven times through this, um, this account in Genesis it pauses to notice not just that the creation is there, God at the end of each day says that it is good. I think we live in a, often a cynical culture that sees our world as fundamentally stuffed up. Like everything doesn't work. Um, you know, there's pollution and global warming and people do the wrong thing. And so we, we can see this. And, and I think more often we just need to look around and say that even though the world isn't what it should be, there are signs everywhere of the goodness of God. The story of the Bible doesn't start with sin or, or brokenness or a problem. It starts with goodness. It starts with a world that's made the way it's meant to be. And so when we look at the creation around us, I think we should be concluding the same thing. How often do we just stop and pause 
and look and reflect on the things that we just take for granted and just the reminder that they are of the goodness of God. When we stop and see a sunset, like I think we can often say notice a good sunset, but we just bring in mind like that is, that is just a sign of the goodness of God. That we can just see something that we can just enjoy that much. When we see, when we see animals and just all the kind of crazy fun stuff that they're up to all the time, um, do we just uh, we, we saw some we were walking on Manly Beach and we saw some whales and you know it was a pretty kind of cool thing to see, but I just didn't I didn't be like oh, wow that's just a reminder of the power and the goodness of God that's how I should be responding to that. Um, do you do you stop when you eat? Um, do you stop when you eat and just reflect that that tasty food is a reminder of the God who made it that He's good that He's just in that one little moment what He has made and what you could never make in a million years. It's just a sign of his goodness and his power. When you take in the softness of grass or the warmth of the sun, do we, do we just remember, yeah, God has made a pretty good world. He's made things good. And does that move us to worship? To, to, just to, to respond to God and say, tell us, tell him thank you. To say, as the psalmist does, like just, just praising him for the glory that he's shown. I, I'd encourage you this week to try to slow down more and actually notice those things. Um, before you eat, when you see the sky or if you catch some stars or some rain or whatever it is, to stop and pause and reflect. And even as we sing after this sermon, uh, we're going to be singing some songs of praise to just call into your head some of the cool things that you're praising God for. Picture a mountain, picture a sunset, picture the ocean and, and just praise him because all of those things display that he is more powerful and good we could ever imagine. So that's the first radical claim that Genesis makes. It's about who God is. This world is not random. It's not chance. That there is a good, powerful God behind it. So far, though, we've just been talking about creation in general. And I just want to finish now by narrowing in to this radical claim that Genesis makes about us as humanity. The, the claim that we are made in the image of God. If you look down in your Bibles and... and, and Skip forward to verse 26 of chapter 1. We're in day 6. God's just made all of the other animals that walk on the earth. And then this is what we see in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. While it's the case that, that all of creation exists to show God's power and his goodness, that, that people are made special. It is humanity, only of humanity, that it's said are made in God's image. And this, this word for, where it says man initially, this is the word for mankind. And it's not just males, and it even just goes to the extra effort to make sure it's clear I'm just talking about male and female by, by bringing male and female into this. That, that humankind is made in the image of God. Which is basically saying that, that we bear a special resemblance to God. I was trying to think of a way to explain this, and I was running through like a few different examples, but I think I found one that's going to work for most of 4 p.m. Who, who played The Sims growing up? Yeah, everyone, great. So the, the Sims, right, when you make The Sims, I think everyone's going to be able to resonate exactly to this situation. You might make a bunch of different sims. You fill your house up. You'll have like dozens of the guys. Um, but but there's, 
there will be one sim that's special, where you'll give your name, you'll make him look like you, you'll find clothes, you might even make a room that's kind of modelled around your room growing up. And, and whereas every other sim, they just exist to be like put in rooms without doors until they go to the toilet on the floor and then die and then you put the tombstone in the family graveyard. Your sim you look after. You give him the best stuff, best food, make sure all of his stats are like super happy. And I, think, I think this is kind of what's going on here. Um, uh, everyone can relate, right? Sim, sim generation. Um, what's going on? All of creation is made by God. Uh, all of creation reflects some aspect of him. Even you know, a rock or a, a bird can, can display some part of, God's, of what God is like in his goodness and his power and his intelligence. But, but it is only people that when you look at you can really start getting to the heart of what God is like in a whole bunch of different ways. In terms, not in terms of how they look. We're not like many models of him, but in the sense that we have, we have a soul, that we have the ability to transcend our physical bodies and engage with the spiritual, and in particular, to engage with a God who is not physical. We've got the capacities for, for deep things like understanding meaning and purpose beyond just survival, uh, of understanding love just beyond attraction, We're, of understanding beauty, of understanding morality and complex thought and spirituality. Humans are unique in creation. We are the pinnacle of creation. The world was made as a place for humans to flourish. Now we need to understand this truth to make sense of our lives. We need to understand that we're unique in creation. Too often we just reduce the level of animals, but we are so much more. We are the very likeness of God, which means that you are not ordinary. You are created with a purpose, which is to reflect God, to know him and be like him. And so in, re- in response to this, I think understanding that we are made in the image of God plays itself out in three ways. And you see a picture of this in chapter 2 of Genesis, which we didn't look at really this morning. We're going to look at it more next week. But we see in the first two people, Adam and Eve, what it looks like to, be, to play out what it means to be in the image of God. So firstly, being made in the image of God means we're to rule over the rest of creation. Verse 26 says that people are to rule over creation. And I think we've botched this up so badly that many of us struggle to think, how could this ever be a good thing? But we are meant to rule creation in the way that God does, with care, respect, and understanding. And and, and understanding the sense that the world, although it's made for us, it's not ours. We're stewards. It is God's world. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, you see Adam and Eve uh, working this garden that is perfect and flourishing as they, as they tend the plants and maintain the goodness that God has built into his creation. We weren't meant to exploit the planet, we were meant to care for it. And this is what we ought to long for. But secondly, being made in the image of God means we are meant to love and care for other humans as equals. As we look around and look at each other, we are meant to see the very face of God in one another. And this has massive implications of the ways that we treat each other. The concept of being made in God's image was what led William Wilberforce, the British politician, to end the slave trade, to spend his life fighting for that. Because the inevitable conclusion of people being made in God's image means that all people are entitled to dignity and respect.
Now, this is the root of why we ought not to exploit each other, betray one another, steal from each other, lie to each other, or kill one another. When you understand that people are made in the image of God, you don't need the Ten Commandments. You don't need anything. You just need to know that you shouldn't do to other people what you wouldn't do to God. It's the reason that we should look at each other and not primarily see uh, people in terms of their nationality or gender or sexual orientation or any other dividing factor, but to acknowledge the fact that we are meant to be united as people because we are all made in God's image. And in Genesis 2, as you look at Adam and Eve, you see two people living in harmony. No distrust, no fear, no barriers. Perfect relationship. And don't you just long for the world to be like this now? Thirdly, being made in the image of God means that we are to relate to God as our king. We are made like God, but that doesn't mean that God is like us. He is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much more holy, so much more righteous. We are to treat him with reverence and worship. But we get to do this in a sense of intimacy. In the garden, in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve walk side by side with God. There is no divide, no barrier. Um, We're meant to to worship God as our ruler, but we get to know him as well as as our father. Because unlike the rest of creation, we are like him. Now, as we consider these areas, it's clear that that's not where we are now. We failed to rule our world properly. As humans, we are fractured, divided, and set on hurting and damaging and using each other. And we haven't submitted to God, and, and we struggle to know him intimately. And so the rest of the story of the Bible has... Is it's about how do we get things back to the way that they're meant to be? How do we go back to how things were at creation? And the question is, can this ever happen? Or what would this look like? And, and this is what the rest of the story of the Bible is about. And this is the reason that Jesus came. This is what we're going to be working towards. Jesus entered our world as the truest image of God. Not merely bearing a resemblance to him, but carrying in himself the fullness of the creator. The one who made the stars in all their glory took on human flesh and showed his ability to rule this creation. Calming storms, healing the sick, and producing food to feed the hungry. He saw through divides of gender, race, and human brokenness. He counterculturally loved foreigners, sinners, the sexually broken. He restored people around them to the dignity that they deserved and reminded them of their identity, their deepest identity as people made in the image of God. And he showed what it means to submit fully to the rule of the Creator. Jesus sought not his own will, but the will of God, even to the point of submitting himself to death. And in doing that, he once again showed God's power and goodness, that in an act of undeserved mercy, we humans are offered a chance to start again, to be recreated into new people, to enter a relationship with God that we have broken, to once again learn to be like him, rule this world, love one another and love our God, and one day to do that perfectly. So in light of this, let me pray.